Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word, open with me to the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 9. And this morning we're going to begin a study through the verses of 20 through verse 27. I'm admitting up front that we're not going to get through these verses in totality today, and perhaps we may not get through them in totality next week. Perhaps we will, but I know for certain that we won't today. And as we come to chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, we come to a very exacting and um, just a marvelous an amazing prophecy that we find in the Word of God. And it's in the mind of many writers and commentators uh, that this perhaps is one of the single greatest defenses of divine, of the divine authorship of the Scriptures with the just amazing exactness and detail of the prophecy being made. It was, um, as a matter of fact, Sir Isaac Newton said of these verses, he said, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone, made five centuries before Christ. Now, by way of review, let me set a context for the passage. If you perhaps, we took a week off last week in recognizing our seniors, we spent a few weeks prior to that and the earlier portions of chapter 9 where we saw the children of Israel, um, Daniel's discovering that their time of captivity is coming to an end. They've perhaps been in the Babylonian captivity for some 68 to 69 years at this point in chapter 9 where we find ourselves with Daniel here. God had previously predicted that they would be in captivity for 70 years and Daniel who had been a key man, a key person for God during the time of captivity with regard to the Judean people there, is, uh, had, was well aware of the statements of Jeremiah the prophet. It says that he was in the books. We know that Daniel, even towards his old age, was in the books, and he saw as he was reading in the books in Jeremiah, and this is just a portion of the context from Jeremiah 25, where it was predicted that the, that the, um, the Judeans would be in captivity and served the king of Babylon for 70 years. And so Daniel, knowing that the time of captivity must be coming to an end, obviously he knows when he got there and he knows where he is age-wise now. Uh, we see in chapter 9 verse 3 that Daniel falls on his knees and he begins praying very specifically and earnestly with regard to what God is wanting to do. So he gave his attention, it says there in 9.3, to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And what he's praying is simply that God would do what God said he would do by bringing conviction, repentance, and a restoration, and then bring his people back to their own land of promise, the land that God had promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land from which they were deported into Babylon for those 70 years. 
And so Daniel in chapter 9, again, he, he begins praying. He's asking God to once again show mercy to the Judean captives and to forgive them all and the sins of all the nation. Daniel put himself right in there with the people of the nation and he recounted a multitude and a number of years of their rebellion and stiff-neckedness against God and he was praying for repentance and he was also praying specifically that, that God would restore the greatness of his own name by bringing his people back to the land of promise. And as we see in verse 17, by letting his face, God's face, shine on his desolate sanctuary. So Daniel's praying that God would restore the greatness of his name through the shining of his face, through the restoration of the sanctuary, meaning the temple of God the city of Jerusalem, of putting God's people back in their right place. And in answer to this prayer, uh, this is where we get to verses 20 through 27. And in answering the prayer, God gives Daniel a very monumental prophecy that gives him some more revelation, some more insight into how God plans on doing that very thing specifically. And as these verses unfold, the three things that we're going to primarily see are very simple things. And we're going to kind of see this as we just kind of walk through the passage. We're going to see circumstances of Daniel. We're going to see then the coming of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. And then thirdly, we're going to see a communication from God. Now that's a very simple outline for this passage, but obviously there's a lot of details along the way. But that's a very simple structure and flowing through the people that we're dealing with here and the, 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 the outflowing of its context. So let's look first of all at the circumstances of Daniel by beginning in verse 20. And we're going to find ourselves here with Daniel looking at what we would just simply call very familiar circumstances. Look at verse 20 with me. Daniel writes, Now while I was speaking and praying, and so um, I said we're going to find Daniel in very familiar circumstances, right? Because Daniel, if anybody was known as being a man of prayer in the word of God, we know that Daniel was definitely uh, that person. And so Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. So again, Daniel's doing what Daniel does. He prays. And we, we see if we... Just peek back at chapter 9, verse 3, earlier in chapter 9, we see the, remember the earnestness, perhaps you remember when we were looking at that, just the seriousness with which Daniel was praying. Daniel's prayers oftentimes weren't um, triteful little things that he would kind of run into and then run away from. Daniel, it says here, was praying with fasting, with sackcloth and ashes. So there was some preparatory work that went involved with Daniel in his time of prayer. It was a time when Daniel set his heart right, you might say, by doing certain things so that his attention and that his focus was in his communication with God and in dealing with God the way that he deemed necessary. And you may perhaps remember from chapter 6, um, a 
of Daniel's great commitment to prayer, um, it was his solemn commitment to praying, and three times a day it says there, as was his custom, was the very purpose for which Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. They, those other commissioners and thus the satraps knew that if they were going to catch Daniel doing something that would be in violation of a, an edict that they got the king to put in place, it was with regard to his relationship with God, and in particular his prayer life. And it seems that this was the way that Daniel was raised. Daniel was raised a good Jewish boy who knew of the God of the scriptures. He knew the scriptures from youth. And he was raised to be a man of prayer. And so here in verse 20 of chapter 9, we just simply find Daniel being Daniel. He's just praying. Again, as was his custom. Now, remember, he was praying something very particular he was praying that God would exalt God's name that God would exalt his own name through the restoration of what well I'm going to call it through the restoration of temple worship Um, remember we saw there in verse 17 that God would cause Daniel wanted God's face to shine on his desolate sanctuary so Daniel, in particular, is wanting God's name to be re-exalted in the nation of Israel, in Jerusalem, through the restoration of temple worship. The restoration of Jerusalem, and thus the restoration of the temple, the restoration of Yahweh worship, the worship of the only true and living God. So, make a note here. Um, This concept, this idea of the restoration of God shining his face on his desolate city and the restoration of Jerusalem and the restoration of temple worship. This is key to remember these things as we work our way through verses 20 down through verse 27 and finding a right understanding and placement for the things we see there. One commentator, Chris White, said, There are many errors that can come by not realizing that Daniel's prayer and the answer to his prayer were very temple-centric. Again, the purpose of his prayer, as we see at the end of verse 20, was in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. That God might be restored to the place of dignity and honor in the world by again being established in the land of promise that he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now we also need to be reminded of the fact that Daniel believed that Yahweh was going to do this. Daniel knew that Yahweh was going to establish and reestablish himself and he had actually come to learn during his time of deportation, Daniel had, by means of divine revelation from God, uh, that God was going to be establishing not only that, but what is identified in that revelation as an eternal kingdom. So by way of reminder, I'm going to walk us through a few passages from Daniel's book, previous chapters that we've looked at, to remind us of so as we find ourselves here in chapter 9, this, this is by way of reminder of where we find Daniel and Daniel's thoughts with regard to the 70 years winding up and his particularly praying that 
uh, his supplications were on behalf of the Lord his God and on behalf of the holy mountain of his God. Where do these concepts come from? Well, we remember all the way back in Daniel chapter 2 with the dream that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Here's just three verses from that context. In Daniel 2, 34 through 35, and then verse 44. It says, you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And so this is all the way back to chapter 2 and the beautiful statue that we used to look at so often. Remember, remember that statue? Yes, okay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. But the stone that struck the statue became what? Became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so Daniel, he's praying on behalf of the holy mountain of God. He was praying in particular that God would shine his face upon his desolate sanctuary. A restoration of Jerusalem, a restoration of temple worship. That he would reestablish the holy mountain of God in that capacity. And Daniel had learned while in captivity that there was going to be a stone that was going to strike this statue that was going to become a mountain and fill the entirety of the earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up what? A kingdom as a result of this, which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. These were just the kingdoms of men on earth. There were particular ones that were mentioned in that statue, but in a general sense, earthly kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever, that being God's kingdom, this holy mountain that will fill the entirety of the earth. And again, Daniel's praying what? On behalf of the holy mountain of his God, that God would shine his face and restore Jerusalem and temple worship. So we're seeing that Daniel was learning some of these things while in captivity. We see again, secondly, that Daniel believed that Yahweh was going to do this and it was going to thus establish an eternal kingdom a second time um, from Nebuchadnezzar's own proclamation at the end of chapter 4. So that was in chapter 2. There was a fulfillment of that. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He goes through the judgment of God and he comes back to his right mind. And at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar makes a proclamation. And this is what his proclamation was in chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Sometimes we inhabitants of the earth need to let this sink in, do we not? <laughs> Sometimes we, we think an awful lot of ourselves as inhabitants on the earth. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was reminded in a very uh, definitive way that the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to the greatness of God. 
But he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Daniel learned even from the proclamation of Nebuchadnezzar and God's fulfillment with that, that God was going to be establishing a kingdom, as he also saw from that same dream in chapter 2. And so Daniel's prayer was on behalf of the holy mountain of his God, where he was wanting God to shine his face on his desolate sanctuary to restore temple worship in Jerusalem. And we see this also, that Daniel learned of this truth in a very particular way. Excuse me. Uh, Twice, we see this for the third time in Daniel's time there in captivity from chapter 7 of God's plans to establish this kingdom that we find him praying about specifically in chapter 9 on behalf of the holy mountain of his God and the restoration of Jerusalem and temple worship. So he says, he see, we see here in t- chapter 7, chap- verses 21, 22, and 27, it says, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So he was seeing in a vision a time when the saints of God were being overpowered because the Antichrist, you're going to have to go back to chapter 7 if you miss some of these, they're on YouTube, was waging war against the people of God and overpowering them, but then the Ancient of Days shows up and game's over, right? And then there's a time when the saints then took possession of that kingdom that holy mountain of God it, that he saw in this dream in chapter 2 where the stone hits the mountain, I mean hits the, the statue and there becomes this great mountain that fills the entire earth. These things are connected. Then the sovereignty, verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So it seems fair to say that Daniel, at the place we find him here in chapter 9, I think it's fair to say that he lived in light of the hope of God and of God's coming eternal kingdom. Wouldn't you agree with that? He's been through a lot. I mean, and in the course of that, he's been in a lion's den and rescued miraculously, right? I mean, he's been, Daniel's been through a lot, and God has revealed a lot during these 70 years of Daniel's Babylonian captivity. And we might dare say that his prayer life perhaps is even a validation of this very hope that Daniel knows and has within himself. Now, our text moves us uh, from Daniel and his common circumstance of praying to God, to the coming of Gabriel. Notice verses 21 through 23. Daniel says, while I was still speaking in prayer, so he's still in the same context of verse 20, he's in prayer. Then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now, if any of you have a translation other than the New American Standard Bible, um, you probably just thought to yourself, well, that seems kind of like an odd translation, right? 
Mine says something about flew to me swiftly or something like this, and it puts the, the emphasis on Gabriel coming to Daniel versus, yes, that Gabriel's coming to Daniel, but he came to him during Daniel's extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. So that's, a, that's an opportunity for us to do a great word study, right? But now's not the time for that because this isn't really going to be an, a significant point. But I did think it was interesting, so when I went and looked at uh, probably 10 different translations on this, the New American Standard is the only one that utilizes this concept of extreme weariness. And there are some grammatical uh, reasons that they do that, but I thought that that might become a little wearisome in our study this morning and opted not to go there with you. You can thank me later. Um, so in verse 22, he gave me instruction. This is Gabriel giving Daniel instruction. He, Gabriel, gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, <clears throat> for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Gabriel simply tells Daniel to put his thinking cap on. I've come to give you some information, Daniel, and you need to know some things. Again, very specifically, notice there in verse 22, uh, Gabriel says to Daniel right here, Oh, Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight into something you currently don't possess with understanding that comes along with such insight that's going to come by way of some new revelation that I'm going to give you from verses 24 down through verse 27. Okay? And then we see this, this concept repeated again here in verse 23, where Gabriel says, I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So Gabriel has come with a very specific purpose. To get to Daniel... understanding and insight into some of the previous revelations that we just kind of walked through from chapter 2 to chapter 4 to chapter 7. And Gabriel's saying, that information that you had is good information, but I've got something else to add to that that you need to understand that's going to help you understand this idea of you're praying on behalf of the holy mountain of your God and the restoration of Jerusalem and temple worship. There's some, some more information, some greater insights than you previously have had, and that's what I am bringing to you. Now, did you notice the beginning of verse 23? Do I have that right here? Beginning of verse 23. Did you notice this by, by just happenstance? Check this out, verse 23. It says, at the beginning, at the beginning of your supplications. So Gabriel is saying... <clears throat> Here at the beginning, verse 23, to Daniel, he says to Daniel, Hey, at the beginning of your supplication, so we know that while Daniel was speaking and praying, okay, so he, he started praying, we see there in chapter, earlier in chapter 9, and, and while Daniel was speaking and praying, but Gabriel says right here at verse 23, at the beginning of that, so at the beginning of the prayer, so we go all the way back to chapter, early in chapter 9 when Daniel starts praying, Gabriel's saying there, at the beginning of your supplications and prayer, something happened. A command was issued, and I've come to give you this information. Which, 
reminded me of another passage in the New Testament, the book of James. A very familiar passage that I know we're all familiar with, but perhaps we haven't connected it with um, a concept or a, a, another passage like this, a context and an application like this. Notice James chapter 4, verse 2. It says, you lust and do not have. That's not what I'm looking for. And so you commit murder. No, you're envious and cannot obtain. Not looking for that. So you fight and quarrel. No, you do not have because you do not ask. Ding, ding, ding. That's what I'm looking for right there. How many of you are familiar with James 4 too? You do not have because you do not ask. Probably most of us, right? And how do we normally kind of Make application for us with regard to James 4.2 on the portion that says you do not have because you do not ask. The importance of doing what? Of asking, of going to God in prayer and, for, and, and asking him for things in prayer. Talking to God, communication with God. So sometimes we would say to ourselves, well, perhaps you don't have, God hasn't provided or, or pr provided you with this, whatever this thing may be, that you really have need of because you have not asked. So again... In Daniel 9.23, Daniel's praying, and Gabriel says to him, it was at the very beginning of your supplication, at the very beginning of the time that you started praying, that what? The command was issued. Because sometimes in life you do not have because you do not ask. And at the moment that Daniel started asking was when the command was issued to go. It's almost as if we see God was in the heavens doing whatsoever he pleases, but yet he was waiting for his man Daniel to start asking. Because perhaps sometimes in life we don't have because we don't ask. Daniel's just down on earth, right? He's just down on earth, just living his normal, his normal life, his best life now in captivity, right? That's a great seller. It's in the Word of God, the most copied and sold book ever in the history of human reading. He's just down living his life. And, and perhaps, right here it says in Daniel 9.23, perhaps the reason Daniel was so what? Check this out. It says right here, for, for, uh, for you, Daniel, are highly esteemed. Doesn't that seem like a little bit of an odd statement coming from heaven just to a human? Why would Daniel be so highly esteemed? I'm kind of making some connections here. I don't know about you. And the connections that I'm making is that Daniel was highly esteemed from heaven's perspective because Daniel was a man of prayer. In other words, Daniel walked with God. Daniel had a walk with God. That was very intimate. Real. It's almost like God knew that. Come year 68, 69. He just kind of knew Daniel was going to have his nose in the books. Because that's what Daniel did. Daniel read the word of God. And he knew that Daniel probably was going to be moved to prayer. As a result of reading God's word. And asking God to do things glorious things for the for the name of God exclusively 
for the repentance of our sin because we've failed as a people miserably. It's like he just knew that Daniel was going to be that guy doing this. Isn't this kind of pretty neat? And so, I don't know about you, but I, this, it just reminded me this week, hey, Averett, man, get, get on your knees and pray. Don't take prayer so lightly. Sometimes you have not because you ask not. Now, I did think also, well, what about the times when we ask fervently over and over and over and over and over and again and again and we don't get the answer we're looking for? And that rather cumbersome answer that keeps coming back to me time and time again is that the Lord does have the prerogative to say no. But that he's still good. But my hope and prayer is that as a result of just kind of taking a peek at Daniel 9.23 here, that we're reminded of, of the necessity of, and the need of prayer. Sometimes you have not because you ask not, ask. Daniel made it his custom to pray how many times daily? Three times daily. The New Testament says that we need to be praying how often? Without ceasing. But there probably should be, now that could be even while you're driving down the road, right? but there probably should be some times of particular prayer for intercession where you're just alone in your prayer closet whatever that looks like it doesn't have to actually be a closet but it could be a room it could be a place you go out somewhere a time of prayer where you like Daniel 9 3 are taking prayer very seriously and perhaps you're not going to put on sackcloth and ashes as he did but perhaps you're going to get your heart positioned in such a way that God knows you're serious in doing business with him and what did we see Daniel praying about specifically? Specifically, what we see Daniel praying about in chapter 9 is for God to forgive him and his people of their great sin. For God to restore the renown of God's own name through the restoration of his city, Jerusalem, and temple worship. Daniel's praying big prayers. And so when I was kind of making some translation of that into my life today, Lord, get me on my knees to pray that you would use me in my life and the preaching of the gospel through my life to reach your elect out here in this world. I know not who they are. In my perspective, it's a whosoever will come because I'm just been with finite thinking. And so I give the gospel freely to everybody and say, come, everybody. Every last one of you come, but I'm not God in heaven. And God has a way of doing what God's going to do. But are we praying the big prayers for God's kingdom to come, for thy will to be done on earth as it is in heaven and people's lives? Like we see Daniel praying here. And it seems that Daniel, as a result of being the man of prayer that he was, from heaven's perspective, is highly esteemed. And I pray that we might... By the end of our lives, as Daniel finds himself here in his 80s, probably being able to be identified as such in the courts of heaven. Lord, let that be so. Amen? You do not have because you do not ask. Now, this leads us to the third aspect of this, these passages from 20... Daniel doing what he does and pray, praying 21 through 23, Gabriel coming and 
then that leads to this communication of God from Gabriel in verses 24 down through verse 27. Notice Daniel 9, verse 24 with me. Gabriel says, by way of revelation from God to Daniel, with regard to Daniel's desire to see the holy mountain of God and God's face shining upon Jerusalem and a restoration of temple worship. Gabriel tells Daniel, here's what you need to know. Seventy weeks have been decreed. Now, um, before we get too deep in verse 24 here, this decreed um, kind of gives us this, the right notion of a divine indication that when God decrees something, uh, you know, who can stay his hand, right? Like, God has decreed something, and he says, 70 weeks have been decreed. This tells us that God has a plan, and that God, who charts the course of history um, exclusively, has predetermined, with regard to Daniel's interest in God's name being great and glorious and shining upon Jerusalem and, the, and his holy sanctuary. God's predetermined with regard to those things what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. It's the, um, it's the idea of a comprehensive plan of God that has been put in motion. In fact, the Hebrew word for decree is, decreed is a uh, word that literally means to cut off something. And it's the idea that in all of human history, in the flow of the course of human history, God has cut off a segment of time, that is 70 weeks, for his own people and for his face to shine upon his desolate city and the sanctuary. Um, he has taken a designated period of time, God has, he's cut it out, and he's going to do something in history in that time frame. And it's a period of designation that's very exacting. It's um, oftentimes when we get into scriptures and we get into numbers, um, there are times when the, the word of God will use kind of like a rounded up number. And it may say that there were 10,000 and perhaps it was 10,000 right on the nose. Perhaps that's just a number that's indicative of a large number somewhere around 10,000. But then there are also times in the scriptures where there are time designations that are given that need to be held to tightly. We see the confusion that comes with this with particular when we get, let's say we just start at the very beginning in Genesis. There's, you know, evening and morning. One day. And then another day. So you've got this time designation. And there are those who want to say, well, really, that's not a day. That's really just this really expansive period of time that really each one of those days was probably billions of years. And so trying to accommodate uh, science, the knowledge of man, with the knowledge of God sometimes can be very confounding. And uh, as Occam said, um, if you find a simple solution, don't look for other solutions. And so oftentimes in the scriptures, when it says like one day, it's 
pretty simple just to take it as being one day. God didn't give us a, a science book. He gave us a book of communication from his heart to us so that we could know him. He didn't write things so that we would be utterly confused and confounded by them to where we say, well, really, we can't ever understand what it means at all. I think that God wanted to communicate with us in a very simple, straightforward way. And yes, there are some things in the Word of God. Peter even said some of the things that Paul wrote are difficult to understand, but they're not impossible to understand, right? So these 70 weeks is a very particular cut-out time of history that God's wanting to do something with. Now, 70 weeks from the Hebrew text is literally translated 70 sevens. And this Hebrew word here for sevens that's translated here in the New American Standard as weeks, so the literal would be 70 sevens here. The Hebrew word for sevens doesn't in itself identify if it's referring to we might say days weeks months or years it just means sevens so there's 70 sevens sevens of something whether it's days weeks months or years and so we have the opportunity and the responsibility as readers and scholars to try to figure that out so when you see a term like this and you know that you need to have a meaning, oftentimes it's best to go into the context of the passage and to see if there's some contextual clues that gives us an understanding for why we and how we should understand that word weeks or sevens. And if you remember, Daniel had already been thinking about what? Well, in chapter 9, Daniel had been thinking about 70 years of time as the time in which the Babylonian captivity uh, was the duration of which of, was, that God had sent them there was for 70 years. So Daniel's kind of thinking already 70 years. After 70 years, it's going to all be over. And then God says to him, well, actually, uh, 77s is there's going to be something that's going to bring about the fulfillment of these things that, you're been, that you've kind of gleaned and understood from chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 7. There's going to be another 77s that's going to bring that about. Yes, the 70 years is upon you, and yes, the time of that captivity has come, but for the complete restoration and for my face to shine upon my holy city and on the sanctuary and for the mountain of God to be established, there's going to be a longer duration. It's not going to happen immediately, and this was perhaps some information pertinent and very relevant for Daniel to understand. And what did Gabriel say when he came to David? I have some pertinent information that you need to understand. He said that to him twice in verse 22 and 23. And so perhaps this is some of the pertinent information that, Daniel, it's not going to happen immediately. But after 77s, there has been a decree of God that something's going to happen that's going to bring that about. Now, another reason I believe that it's good to kind of keep in mind that these 77s, that the 7s here is a reference to years translated here weeks, that's, that these weeks are seven years of weeks, and that's a very difficult, kind of awkward way of saying this. But one of the reasons I think that it's also uh, meant to be understood as a concept of years, of a, like a cluster of seven years, this sevens, is because 
of what we looked at previously when we were in Leviticus 25. Perhaps you remember, y'all remember when we were in Leviticus 25 about two or three weeks back? And we were looking specifically at the, the land Sabbath laws. Well, I've, I've got a little bit here to remind you. Leviticus 25, verse 3 and 4, dealing with Levit Levitical um, land Sabbath laws. It says here in Leviticus 25, 3, that six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, <clears throat> the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. In other words, there's going to be six years where you work your land, and on the seventh year you let your land have rest. You don't work your land. And so they understood years in terms of a cluster of seven years. This cycle would start uh, all over again. Every seven years there was a cycle of this land Sabbath rest. You work it for six years. On the seventh year, you let it rest. On that, That's a, a Sabbath cycle. It's a cycle of seven years. And after this seven-year cycle of seven years, um, you would have, so then you would have seven cycles of seven years. You would have then seven times seven. That'd be 49 years, right? And so it was after 49 years, after seven cycles of these seven years, came about what was known in the nation of the year of Jubilee. And that year of Jubilee was something that would happen on the 50th year every 50 years. So there would be seven cycles of these seven-year cycles, and on that seventh year you let the land rest. But after seven of them, 49 years, on that next 50th year, that was the year of Jubilee, and you also let your land rest. You did not work your land in the year of Jubilee. And... It was in the year of Jubilee <clears throat> that all the uh, estates that belonged to owners who perhaps found themselves indebted to neighbors and so they had to give portions of their land as a way to repay their debts. It was in that year of Jubilee that all those debts were then considered to be paid up in full and those laborers would be set free to go back just to labor their own land for themselves. And so that kept the land within the families, um, and there wasn't a disparity with one family ended up gobbling up everybody else's land around them. So every 50th year this year of Jubilee was the, the time that God did that. And that jub Jubilee year was a great year of, and the, the word itself kind of is indicative of it, like it's a great year of celebration, right? It's a Jubilee, it's... We sing songs about that, and they're very upbeat, and you just want to kind of dance when you sing them, right, James? I mean, James is affirming it, right? Um, it's a time of great celebration. Um, we sing that song, you know, Slaves Set Free. It's the year of Jubilee. And there, there came to be this, uh, within the prophets, there came to be this, this idea, this concept of a of a jubilee celebration that was attached with the coming of the promise of Messiah. We're going to get there a little bit next week. We're not going to be able to get there today, but I just wanted to kind of preface that a little bit as I was as we're dealing with some of this information that we're not normally accustomed to dealing with, which is like land Sabbath cycles and those kinds of things. Are, are you following me so far? I'm trying to speak slowly, but I'm trying to go quickly too because... 
it's information that's important to know because as you study scripture, what you're doing is you're building line upon line upon line. You're, you're making your case. And so I'm trying to make my case, but um, I learned when going through Daniel 7, oftentimes I was speaking more quickly than I needed to, and I needed to slow down some. So I encouraged a lot of people, go back and see, watch the videos. Because sometimes there's so much downloading of information, it's challenging for the preacher to know exactly how fast or slow he or should go with that. So I'm intentionally giving you some time here to absorb land Sabbath cycles. Aren't you excited about that today? Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's have an altar call. Now, these aren't the things that typically you build an altar call around, right? But in a Bible church, we're here to give knowledge. And it's amazing how God takes knowledge, and the Spirit of God takes knowledge of God, and he convicts hearts, and he, he's the one that opens the eyes of hearts. So it wouldn't be surprising to me in the least if at some point someone got converted over understanding the concepts of land Sabbath cycles in relation to Daniel chapter 9 and the significance of that coming mountain that's going to fill the entire earth. And them going, wow, I get it, I see it. Praise Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if that were to happen at some point in time. Where am I? I have no idea. I'm in the year of Jubilee. So let's just stand and sing Jubilee because I'm looking at the clock and it's telling me this might be a good point to drop my pen. I'm just going to have to drop a pen at some point in this. Let me see if I can't get through a couple of more passages that will kind of sync this together for us a little bit more. Something that's also important is, again, understanding these, this, this concept of, of uh, weeks here. 70 weeks. It's a time designation that's been decreed for, we're going to get here for your people and your holy city. Because Daniel's been praying for his people in his holy city and for God's face to shine upon his holy city that he called a, a holy mountain. But this, des this time designation, this sevens, this 77s, and why we view this 77s, <clears throat> the sevens right here in particular, as being a cycle, this seven-year cycle that's connected with the land Sabbath cycle, which would mean that there, so, the, so what that would mean in essence, that if we were to take this time of 70 sevens, you would have 70 sevens, and each cycle of sevens is seven years within that cycle, so it'd be the 70 times seven, which would equal the 400, that would equal a total of 490 years. And really, even if I don't articulate this as well as I had hoped to articulate it this morning, I can tell you that I'm, I, I can't think of any conservative commentary that doesn't articulate that weeks, which is, which is actually a, a literal sevens, isn't a seven-year cycle. Just go and do your homework. Be like the Berean and go and search these things out. But in essence, what Daniel is discovering here is that he's all excited. Hey, the 70 years has come to pass. God put us in captivity because we failed to observe the land sabbath cycles for 490 years now don't you find that somewhat coincidental that they failed to observe the land sabbath cycles for 490 years and god said i'm going to give you one year for every cycle that you failed to observe that land and put you in captivity and thus the the duration of their captivity was 70 years but then on the back side of it on coming out of the captivity he turns right around and he says the basically using the exact same time frame 
that there's now going to be 490 years. So you failed to do something for 490 years. That's brought you to where you came. You went through this deportation for the 70 years. And now you're coming out. You're praying that I'm going to do something. And you've seen in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 7, I'm going to do something. I'm up to something big. I'm up to something good. You've seen that. But there's going to be another cycle of 490 years that are decreed before these things really find their fruition. Those are some of the things, <coughs> excuse me, that I think are just absolutely amazing to think about. Now, another thing that seems in my part maybe just as amazing is that Daniel, <coughs> excuse me, that Daniel knew, um, Daniel clearly knew that one of the reasons, as I made mention, that the nation of Israel was in captivity was because they violated these Sabbath land cycles. They, they had failed uh, to do that. We see that very clearly in the Second Chronicles passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Um, those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon. So we know we're talking about the Babylonian captivity. And, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia. That was Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians came and defeated Babylon. And God used Cyrus to set God's people free to go back to Jerusalem and to start rebuilding the, um, the sanctuary. He used Nehemiah to start rebuilding the wall around the city so that the city could be rebuilt. In verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, Daniel was, had his nose in the book of Jeremiah. That's when he said it's going to be 70 years until the land. So here's where we're connecting with the land and the, the Sabbath cycles of the land. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So there's a very strong connection to Sabbath cycles and the land Sabbath and this seven-year cycle of time as to why they're there that makes it very obvious as to this is why we need, need to and can understand that weeks, these sevens, is a cycle of seven years that uh, God has put in play here for the time duration of that he's decreed for the Jewish people. Who are, who's Daniel's people? So you're here for Daniel. Uh, these 70 weeks, these 490 years have been decreed for your people. So if I were to ask a simple question, who's Daniel's people, we would say what? We would say the Israelites. We'd say the Jewish people. And for your holy city, what was Daniel's holy city? Well, we would say it's Jerusalem. To do something, to, and then we say finish and then it goes on and this is where I'm going to drop a pen today is in the 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 doing of what's going to take place within that time frame that God has given Daniel and remember this is one of those passages that um that needs a lot of uh, study and look it was as I mentioned at the beginning it was Sir Isaac Newton now just saying that name doesn't that feel like just Sir Isaac Newton I mean, that just carries a, a, a lot of weight with it. See, if I'd have said, um, Sir Matt Harkey said that we can, with certainty on this prophecy alone, made f there's something about Sir Isaac Newton, right? So if Isaac Newton looked deeply into Daniel 9, 20 through 27, and he said that five centuries before Christ, we could stake the truth of Christianity on this prophecy alone, man, that's enough weight to get somebody's nose into the books, right? Right? should be 
And so that's our, that's our goal as we work our way and as we study our way through Daniel 9 um, over this next couple of weeks. And let me encourage you, um, this feeling that you're having right now, I say this often whenever we have sermons like this, because not all sermons are built the same. Sometimes I get to preach John 3.16, and it feels vastly different than Daniel chapter 9, right? And so not all sermons get built out the same. We're in a portion of Scripture in the book of Daniel that's very heady, it's very deep, and it's, it requires a lot of thinking. And that's why even Gabriel said to Daniel, hey, I've come to give you some insight and some information so that you can have greater understanding. You've got to put your thinking cap on, Daniel. And so we have to be like, like, like Daniel. We have to be willing to put our thinking caps on when we come to church. And not, well, as you know at Jinx Bible, we're, we're, I'm not here to entertain you. My goal is not to entertain you in the least. My goal is simply to be a herald of God and to say, thus saith the Lord. And so we pray that God would bring people to this church who, who just simply want to know what thus saith the Lord says. I can promise you, if you're, if you're interested in some entertainment, there's a lot of venues out there on the outside of these four walls of this church that can do a much better job at entertaining you than I could. I can promise you that. But we're here for the purpose of being educated in God's word so that we can grow in grace and so that we can be what? Salt and light. We can take truth with us. You run into somebody and they say, well, how do you know all this is true? You're going to say, well, let me tell you what. You got, you got three hours? Let me show you the book of Daniel chapter 9. And then you go meet with them for coffee over at your local store or whatever and you start going through Daniel 9, and they start going, man, you're, where did you get this stuff? I've never seen this in my entire life. And you all of a sudden look like a stud muffin. You look like Daniel. And you've got all kinds of information that you can pass along to people that gives them insight and inf information that they never had before so that they can know the God of the Bible. And then through knowing the God of the Bible, God opens the eyes of hearts to see that's why we're here and that's why we sometimes take as long as we take to get through passages of scripture so that being said thank you for being willing to sit underneath the teaching of God's word it's a it's a rare church I think these days that are willing to sit and learn and so I commend you for that and so we're going to continue laboring in the word of God next week in Daniel chapter 9 I can promise you you don't want to miss this as a matter of fact, you want to grab somebody that you probably know needs to hear some of this and just say to him, listen, this isn't your typical church service. He's not going to say a lot of funny jokes. He's not going to make you laugh. But he's, he's going to give you some information and truth from God's word that will definitely enlighten you and open your eyes to see some things you've never seen before. And I think that's where God works. Honestly. Amen.